You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to daily podcast for all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer, as well as a prospect writer and analyst. And in today's episode, we are going to recap briefly the difficult Giants series for the Marlins, where they dropped three out of four. A lot of offensive struggles for this team, which was to be expected without two of the focal points of your offense, that being Starling Marte and even Brian Anderson, though he has struggled, offers a lot more than what the Marlins are going to be able to get out of anybody who's going to fill his spot in the lineup right now. The Marlins do get one win, and it was a good late rally from the ball club to avoid really what could have been an ugly four-game sweep. They took that third ball game of the series 5-2, to two, beating Kevin Gossman but the other ball games, they were shut out by Aaron Sanchez, who again, I have said time and time again, I think Aaron Sanchez has looked really good so far this season. When he's healthy, he is very tough to hit, a strong breaking ball. They also lose to Alex Wood, who shut them out last time out, and Sandy Alcantara did not put together his best start of the season. He wasn't bad by any stretch, but didn't go as deep into the ball game as he typically does, and just was not quite as lights out as we've seen him. That's going to happen from time to time. You just really can't handle those types of issues when your offense is as anemic as it's been lately. The team was able to put up three runs in that game, but not enough there as they lost that ball game 5-3. And then another late rally in the final game of the series where it just was too little too late. A two-run shot from Jesus Aguilar, who has to be the bright spot far and away from that giant series. He has been on fire at the plate, and the Marlins really need him to be able to do what he's been doing. Homering three times in the series, absolutely massive, and still not quite enough. The Marlins need more than just a Jesus Aguilar effort, and there's some things that I wanted to unpack about the offensive situation outside the obvious, that being that Starling Marte is out, and that Brian Anderson is out, and that Jorge Alfaro is also missing. The Marlins have made some good moves. I did love the decision to put Adam Duvall in center field. That is a little bit of a leap of faith defensively, but Duvall is very, very good in the corners. He's sneakily a very good runner, as we've talked about in the past. In the top 20 percentile when it comes to sprint speed, he takes good routes to the ball. He's good enough to man center field, and I think he showed that in that final game of the series. And the Marlins have to take those kind of chances because, again, they need to be able to try to get any offense they can. And if it comes at the expense of a little bit of defense, which I don't really think is that much of a loss for them in the defensive category, when you replace let's say, Lewis Brinson with Duvall because Brinson has kind of taken some of those struggles out to the field, has not been this supreme defender in center field. Magnara Sierra is probably a leg up. He has been very impressive in center field, but I do like the just the stark difference, of course, in power potential too from an Adam Duvall. Sierra not really hitting well so far. He has had some good at-bats. I think he's going to start to put it together. I haven't looked at him and said, okay, he just looks overmatched out there or he doesn't look the part. I think he's going to be just fine, and he still has a spot and belongs on this roster. I love him as a bench piece to be able to be a pinch runner, a defensive replacement, and a guy that can put the bat on the ball. A 1-for-13 start, not ideal, but he will be just fine. I think the fact that he's also already walked twice this year is something that kind of follows up from the trend of last season, though a small sample size 
He is walking more as of late, and that is a huge bonus because he is such a dangerous player once he's on the base paths, able to steal some bags, able to take first to third pretty easily on a base hit, and the Marlins need to find ways to manufacture runs, and Magnera Sierra can do that. So plugging him into the lineup from time to time, being a late-game replacement, that is all good, and also just having another lefty bat off the bench that's very contact-oriented. Lewis Brinson, I mean, it's just really frustrating at this point. He did have a pretty clutch single off the fists that just got over the head of the Giants' second baseman. But overall, I mean, this is just a guy that unfortunately needs a change of scenery, and I hope he's able to figure it out down the road. But it seems pretty obvious that that's not going to be with the Marlins, and they need to potentially look at any opportunities to see if they can package him with some other prospects, though I doubt Lewis Princeton really has any trade value. A team like the Pirates, as I've floated in the past, may be interested in taking a flyer on him. He's obviously incredibly skilled physically. He has shown that he can put up the numbers in the minor leagues, and while Marlins fans have seen more than enough of Brinson to say, I don't think this guy's going to pan out at the major league level, there's been crazier stories, and if he can even put it together in a relative aspect of just being a platoon type of player, it's worth a flyer for a team like the Pirates that really isn't playing for much right now, and they can acquire him for essentially nothing. But I think at this point, the Marlins need to start looking at other options for that important active roster spot and 40-man roster spot that it's just being wasted somewhat to a degree on Lewis Brinson. The other guy that seems like maybe on the hot seat a little bit when it comes to his roster spot is Paul Campbell. Another bit of a struggle of an outing for Campbell. He came out and said after the ball game that he knows he belongs there and that he's going to show he belongs there. And I do believe that Paul Campbell is a major league caliber pitcher, whether it be out of the bullpen or as a spot starter or whatever it is. I just don't know if the Marlins really need to wait that out right now with a Paul Campbell. He has been a bit unlucky so far, as the FIP would point towards, as a lot of the figures would point towards, and the breaking ball has been really solid, both breaking balls. The slider has been a great pitch for him so far this year. He actually hasn't given up a hit so far this season on the slider, and the curveball has been good at times as well. He does rack up a 42% whiff rate, but does miss the spot from time to time with that pitch. But overall, his secondary offerings have been strong. The issue for him is that the fastball is getting knocked around, opponents hitting 380 off of it, but also you can see the lack of confidence in that fastball where he's nibbling at the corners. He's trying to be too careful. He's a guy that's historically had pretty good command, but he's walked six and seven and two-thirds innings, and he's also given up 10 hits. When you have a whip over two, yet your FIP is still in the fours, in the low fours, you have a unique case here with Paul Campbell. I still think, like I've said, that Paul Campbell can be a quality pitcher and a quality reliever, middle reliever, and spot starter in this game. But for the Marlins, they don't really need a spot starter. They don't really need a middle reliever that badly to the point where you're going to use that roster spot over a guy like maybe Anthony Bender or Jordan Holloway. I know Holloway is up now, but just in terms of how you think you're going to structure this team in the future, because Holloway, you have that roster spot because of the fact that you have players on the injured list right now. It gives you some flexibility, albeit unwanted flexibility, but allows the Marlins to have a couple arms that they would probably have to decide between generally that they are able to have both of them at the same time. I was really impressed from what we've seen from Holloway in limited action so far. He looked really strong, and I think that Holloway has a really high ceiling 
as we know with the stuff that he has, being able to hit the upper 90s, sometimes even hit triple digits, a really good swing and miss breaking ball that you look at him and you're like, okay, this is somebody that I want to see develop. This is a dude with undoubtedly a higher ceiling than a Paul Campbell, albeit maybe a little bit more volatile. But at this point, Paul Campbell's seeming a bit more volatile than some of us may have expected. And for that reason, I think you got to start looking at maybe not carrying two rule five guys. Zach Pop has been phenomenal, as I've talked about in the last episode, and he had another strong outing after that, where Campbell, you might just want to have a little bit more flexibility where you can send guys up and down, don't have the rule five headache, and you can experiment with Anthony Bender. If he's not ready, then you send him back down. You can experiment with Holloway and some other options, even Jorge Guzman, who will eventually be back and could be available as a bullpen option in the second half of the season. The Marlins will have some opportunity to kind of think about some other guys if they eliminate one of the rule five guys. I'm not upset with keeping Paul Campbell because I do like him, but I think the idea of having a little bit more flexibility and not having your hands tied by multiple rule five guys and clearly Zach Pop's not going anywhere, that is something that is worth some thought and a bit interesting for the Marlins to think about as we move forward here and as they continue to try to figure out exactly how to manage this bullpen. I'm going to talk about the series ahead with the Brewers, a quick little rundown on this ball club that has been really surprisingly strong despite a lot of injuries as they sit 12-8, and eight, I think, of, or 13-8, and eight, excuse me, a very impressive and surprising story that has been buoyed by strong starting pitching and just a light out bullpen that has made this team pretty competitive. And you can only think when they get some of their guys back, including Christian Yelich, including you have Lorenzo Cain also on the injured list. You just got to wonder how good this team could potentially be when they get their big boppers back because of how strong the top of that rotation is with Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff. Also, Freddie Peralta, somebody that I recently have just talked about on the Locked On MLB Prospects podcast. And then when you have a bullpen headlined by Devin Williams, Josh Hader, and now the latest bullpen success story for the Brewers, J.P. Fireisen, which is a name that is a mouthful, but also is a pain on the mound because he has been lights out this season, has not given up a single run in 11 and two-thirds innings, 12 outings so far, has slid right into a back end of the bullpen role for this team as well. So I'm going to discuss what the Brewers have been doing well, what the Marlins can expect heading into the series, and then how this team can stay afloat with the limited offense and what the days look like ahead until they get Brian Anderson back, and still until they get Starling Marte back, until they get B.A. back, and still have some other issues that I think clearly need to be addressed because even with Marte and Anderson, This is an offense that is just wildly inconsistent, and there are some concerns I have moving forward for this ball club beyond just the catching position, which I'm going to talk about probably ad nauseum, and I'm sorry if you're sick of me talking about the catching position. I'm trying to limit it a little bit, but now even with Alfaro out, it is a very frustrating situation behind the dish for this Marlins team. Quickly, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by 1010. 1010 is a capsule collection of diamond rings that are responsibly sourced, limited edition designs at fair price points. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 creative styles of diamond rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. 
rings sure to bring joy into her life. Using diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 female design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful ring, ideal for engagement, Mother's Day, or simply a beautiful conversation piece. They're the perfect way to bring light into her life, and they're available now through Mother's Day only at BlueNile.com. Just search the words 10 by 10. This collection features high-quality fine jewelry that will surprise and delight and are fairly priced so you can give her something special and truly meaningful. If you're on the hunt for the perfect unique ring that she'll treasure forever, you're definitely going to want to check this out. They won't be around for long, so find them now by searching the words 10 by 10 only at BlueNile.com. Also brought to you by BetOnline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. We've got NBA, MLB, and NHL all in full swing. But BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. You could have bet on the Oscars last night even. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and you'll receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit if you use the promo code Locked On. That's one word, Locked On, for a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. So let's discuss the surprising Brewers that are going to be tough for the Marlins. No way around it. They will be a tough team for the Marlins to get through. The good news is they will be avoiding Brandon Woodruff, who just threw for the Brewers. He has been also one of the better pitchers in the game. I think it's been a one-two punch at the top here of Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff that it's been as good of a one-two punch as you're going to find in baseball. Burns has pitched to a .37 ERA, 24 in a third's innings, 40 strikeouts, no walks. 40 strikeouts, no walks, and only eight hits. That's good for a whip of, get this, 0.32. That is just absurd. Obviously unsustainable, but still, by the time many of you are listening to this, there's probably a good chance that the Marlins already are squaring off or already squared off against Burns. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about him, but I'll just say this. The Marlins offense has been struggling. There's no way around that. But if the Marlins offense struggles against Corbin Burns, they're no different than any other offense in the league as every single team that has faced Corbin Burns in his four starts so far has struggled against him. So while the Marlins have been bad, this is one of those games where you can't really hold it against the ball club for struggling potentially struggling. We don't know yet, but I'm going to assume that they're not going to put up a five spot on Corbin Burns, but baseball is weird and you never know. And the Marlins did beat DeGrom, though they didn't really tee off on DeGrom either. Jazz Chisholm did put up a good swing against him, and that was kind of what led the charge for the team. This is going to be a very tough matchup for the Marlins. It is very helpful that they avoid a Brandon Woodruff, and they also get to avoid Freddie Peralta, who has been a very impressive arm for this Brewers team as well. Peralta has been racking up the swings and misses at a ridiculous rate. While he does walk his fair share of batters, his slider has been just unhittable this season. He's been getting a lot of swings and misses on the fastball as well, pitching to a 2-4-5 ERA. The Marlins avoiding Peralta is a big win as well because he has been a very, very impressive pitcher so far this season. But Adrian Hauser, Another guy that you can't really sleep on, though I think Hauser is very beatable and 
doomed for a bit of regression. He doesn't get a lot of swings and misses, and he's been walking batters. Really, the strikeout-to-walk rate has not been great. He walks about four batters per nine and strikes out about six batters per nine. So this is a guy that's somewhat destined to take a step backwards from his 3.32 ERA, and it's no surprise to me that the FIP is approaching five for him because the numbers all around just don't seem like it's something that is sustainable for him to keep the ERA in the threes. Brett Anderson, another quality lefty that won't be available for the Brewers as they continue to battle injuries. So the Marlins do avoid outside of the obvious with Corbin Burns. They do avoid the other two best pitchers for the Brewers so far this season with, and probably moving forward. These are two guys I really like with Woodruff, who's a pretty established stud at this point. And also I am very sold on Peralta's success as I talked about in the Locked On MLB Prospects podcast. It's just for him. The question is the command, but the Marlins can fortunately worry about that another time. They're likely to get and Eric Lauer, who will probably be making his first start of the season as well. So there are two pretty favorable pitching matchups after the Trevor Rogers matchup, which will be against Corbin Burns. So you do unfortunately have to face their best in Burns. But overall, I would say this is a pretty solid outcome for the Marlins pitching matchup wise against the Brewers, given that you could be facing in a row three of their best with Woodruff and Peralta. Instead, you get Burns and you do have a red hot Rodgers on the mound against him. So you hope that Rodgers can match him with zeros. The problem is that the bullpen for the Brewers is really, really good. And the Marlins have seemingly been relying on late game rallies. And I just don't think that that's going to work too well against a team like the Brewers. We know how good Josh Hader is, and he's been the same Josh Hader as he's always been this year. His fastball is elite. He's thrown it 72% of the time and getting a 53% whiff rate on it. And to put that into context, yes, he's a closer or reliever, but Trevor Rogers, who is one of the best with the fastball right now this season, is racking up a 39% whiff right now on that heater, which is incredibly impressive. As a starter, I think if you had Rogers in a hater type of situation, he'd probably get that kind of whiff rate as well, being able to go a little bit higher average velo and being able to just whistle it by guys and lean on that fastball a bit more. So you're compa- comparing apples to oranges here, but just imagine, you see how many swings and misses that Trevor Rogers gets on his fastball. Now imagine how many Josh Hader gets, given that it's about 14% more. It's just crazy how unhittable Hader's fastball is. It literally has been unhittable. He hasn't given up a single hit on it this season. Opponents are 0 for 15 with 10 Ks against the fastball and the slider. They are much better at 1 for 6 so far this season. So he is just downright nasty, and he is a guy that you're not going to be leaning on a late-game rally against Josh Hader. It's just very unlikely to happen. And then the thing is, they have other relievers that are great too. After a rough start, the first two outings for Devin Williams, he's back to being Devin Williams, and he is pretty darn difficult to hit. He is a bit susceptible to the long ball so far this season, especially if he leaves the changeup up or if the fastball, when he falls behind in the count and has to go to the fastball, it's not that great of a pitch. So Devin Williams is a bit more beatable, but he is still not a guy that you're really looking forward to facing like, oh great, we got Corbin Burns out, now we get to face Devin Williams. He is still very difficult to hit, especially with that changeup when it's on and the way he's able to manipulate it. But the fact that the Brewers just pop up and get another guy, J.P. Fireisen, which is just an absurd name. I love it. But J.P. Fireisen is now another just pop-up Brewers reliever that is really hard to hit. 
pitching to a zero ERA through his first 12 outings. Like, this is just a very tough bullpen. So you're not going to be relying on late-game rallies. Against Corbin Burns, the hope has to be that you get him out of the ball game before the seventh so that you don't have just the bridge straight to Devin Williams, Fire Eisen, and Hayter. That would be the goal. And that could be an attainable goal for the Marlins because of the fact that Corbin Burns, even though he doesn't walk guys, has not walked anybody this year, his pitch count has gotten up at times because when you rack up the number of strikeouts that he is racking up right now, averaging about 15 a ball game, you're going to be going deep into a lot of counts. That's why he's averaging about six innings per start, which is very solid in today's game. But that would be I guess ideal for the Marlins if they could get Corbin Burns out of the game before the seventh. That's a big win, and you just hope that you can get to whoever the bullpen arm is ahead of Josh Hader and potentially Devin Williams or even Fire Eisen, who has to give up a run eventually. He's not going to have a zero ERA forever, though he's been a great story and he's looked really impressive, and I'll dive into his numbers in a moment. A potentially locked-in Devin Williams is more alarming to me, and obviously Josh Hader, than Fire Eisen, even though he is yet to give up a run yet this season. The other thing, too, is that you don't want Burns going seven, eight, nine innings because when you have the subsequent two games, it's very unlikely, although I will say nothing is impossible because this Marlins offense had Logan Webb go very deep into the ball game against him. It's going to be unlikely that Eric Lauer or Adrian Hauser are going to go seven plus innings against you. So if you can get the bullpen used and keep the ball game close, at least in that Corbin Burns start, then at least they might not be able to go to Hayter and Devin Williams in all three ball games. That's also important. So I think that's why Trevor Rogers needs to keep this team in the ball game in game one. You keep your team in the ball game in game one, you make the Brewers go to their ace bullpen guys, then at least at that point, you're going to have a good chance of being able to get the secondary team out of the bullpen for the Brewers in games two and three, which would presumably be a start of Dan Castano against Adrian Hauser and then Sandy Alcantara against Eric Lauer, which is a very obvious uh, advantage Marlins in game three. And I could argue that game two, the way Castano has looked and the way that Hauser has looked, two guys that are probably out pitching their quality of stuff, that could be a bit of a wash between those two. You're going to want to have their bullpen used in game one. So that will be interesting to watch in a low-key important storyline in game one for the Marlins that even if they're not going to win that ball game, which they're kind of, it's, it's kind of a scheduled loss when you're going against Corbin Burns with a very limited offense, at least get them to use their A team out of the bullpen. That would be a nice bonus. I'm going to discuss the Marlins and Brewers offenses heading into this series. Two teams that are very banged up with their best hitters out for at least this series and then a more specific dive into how the Marlins can try to improve this offense in the meantime and piece it together because we're seeing a team that is very much experimenting with how to make the best offense and just the most competitive offense possible right now because they are very desperate for production and things could get ugly pretty quickly if the Marlins don't figure out a way to piece it together in some sort of manner that will keep them afloat until their two hitters come back in Starling Marte and Brian Anderson. Before that, a message from Built Bar, the best tasting protein bar on the market with 18 delicious flavors. They are all covered in chocolate, easy to chew, great for a keto diet because they are low in sugar, low in fat, low in carbs, and high in protein. There are so many different flavors to choose from. They're all under 200 calories, and they are all 
great tasting. And if you go to BuiltBar.com right now and use the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. That's LOCKED15 for 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. So let's talk about these two offenses that are both very underwhelming, though the Brewers have found some ways to put it together, and ironically, very different from the Marlins. The Brewers have been buoyed by a catcher that has been leading the charge for their offense. Omar Navarez has been quite the story for the Brewers, hitting 389 so far this season, an OPS over 1,000. He has been a machine. He's walking more than he strikes out. He's just been leading the way for the Brewers. And the Brewers have some frustrating storylines too because Keston Hira looks broken at the plate. And I think you're going to see that continue this series. I mean, he is looking alarmingly lost at the plate. And this dates back to last year as well. But he's even worse so far this season. Hira is essentially swinging and missing at everything, which is terrifying if you're a Brewers fan or a Brewers front office member because this is somebody that you're counting on to be not only one of your better hitters, but but probably one of the best hitting second baseman in all of baseball. Now he's not really even defensively strong enough to play consistent second base. He's got some questions there where we're seeing him play a lot of first base, and I think he'd be DHing some if there were a DH in the National League. While he was barreling baseballs up quite a bit in his first two seasons, and he still is able to put up some decently high barrel figures, the strikeout rate was really bad in his first season. I mean, not really bad, but pretty bad at 31%. It got worse in his second season at 35%, and now it's sitting at 35% yet again. That is always concerning. But the fact that he's actually not chasing an egregious amount, and he's actually just swinging and missing through pitches in the strike zone, that has to be even more concerning and probably one of the biggest red flags you can have as a hitter. He's swinging and missing at 51% of breaking balls and 42% of fastballs. That is terrifying for the long-term outlook of Keston Hira. I'm not sure what's going on with him at the plate. He's clearly not seeing the ball well. His approach is not playing. And this is dating back to last year as well. 41% whiff rate on fastballs. Last season, 42% whiff rate on breaking balls. So he's swinging and missing at even more breaking balls this season. And fastballs have even ticked up over a percentage as well when it comes to swings and misses. A buck 94 against fastballs, a buck 20 against breaking balls. This is somebody that is not offering much at the plate. And an interesting thought exercise here for Marlins fans that are still really hung up on the Yelich trade. Now assume you switch out Lewis Brinson for Keston Hira, or even Monte Harrison, or even Isan Diaz for Keston Hira. That would obviously be a better situation. But I'm looking at Keston Hira right now, and I'm seeing a guy that could be heading down a similar road of struggle as Isan Diaz. And that is not really an exaggeration whatsoever. What, what he's putting up in terms of his offensive figures are really, really bad. And the defense is even worse than Isan. He is a liability at this point at second base. So if you were to get Keston Hira in that deal too, people would be like, holy crap, that is the biggest overpay of all time for Christian Yelich. They were already looking at it as being an overpay at the time of the deal. Now, it just shows you how difficult it is to predict prospects and just it is what it is. I don't really want to rehash the trade too much more and I'm sure some of you are probably listening now like, come on man, can we just move on? But I just thought about as we watch the struggles of Keston Hira, 
Who else could the Marlins have gotten in that deal in a, what was a loaded system at the time that just guys have not really panned out from this Brewers system? And that might be something to do with the Brewers' development, but at the same time, some of these guys go over to the Marlins and aren't developing that well either. So whatever it was that was going on in Milwaukee there, uh, where these prospects were really highly regarded, and I always loved Keston Hira, but when you look at the minor league numbers, there were some alarming figures when it came to the swing and miss that I think people were overlooking because of the high production that he was putting up and kind of just ignoring the ridiculously high BABIP because they were like, okay, he hits the ball really hard. But all of a sudden, we're looking at a guy that could be a candidate to be sent down sometime soon. I really don't think Keston Hira is going to shake some of these struggles and it is fully time to be legitimately concerned about Keston Hira and just it is just so hard to know how some of these prospects are going to pan out and that's why it is just another example of just how unpredictable it can be at times but when we look at the rest of this Brewers offense nobody is really hitting for them that's the crazy thing getting Colton Wong back is a huge bonus for this team defensively and offensively he's been one of their better offensive players if not their second best offensive player this season so far a 900 OPS now he's back for this offense. That's huge. And that hurts for the Marlins. Of course, you want to see everybody come back healthy for every team across the league. But if Juan came back a few days later, that would have been kind of beneficial because he has been a staple for their team at the front of their lineup. And the rest of the guys just have not been hitting that well. You look at Travis Shaw, 662 OPS. Billy McKinney has been brought up to fill in for Christian Yelich, who's going to be out for a little bit more time. And it's been really tough. I hope that Christian Yelich comes back quite soon because the reports are that his back is continuing to bother him, and Marlins great Craig Council, the manager of the Brewers, recently said that Yelich hit a bit of a plateau, which means he's not going to be back for this series. No way. It's actually not possible for him to be back. I think the soonest that Yelich is eligible to return to the roster, or the active roster off of the IL, is the 29th, and it doesn't look like he's going to be returning that fast with Craig Council saying that he's hit a plateau in the recovery. Really unfortunate, and you hope that the back issues are more muscular and not more of a serious issue because Christian Yelich is one of the most exciting players in the game, and I hope that he'll be back soon. Lorenzo Kane, 35 years old. Yes, he's aging, but still a really important part of this ball club defensively and still offers some power and is dynamic enough at the plate that they are feeling the loss of Lorenzo Kane as well. And this is a team that doesn't really have a ton of offense out outside of those guys. Jackie Bradley Jr. was brought into the mix this offseason as a free agent. He's not hitting well at all. I mean, I don't think you can expect much from Jackie Bradley Jr. offensively. He is incredible defensively, and we'll be able to appreciate that a little bit in this series because he seems to just make everything look easy and just has a rocket for an arm and is almost a shoe-in to make a superstar play every single series, but he doesn't offer much at the plate either. And when you look top to bottom for this team, it's just not a great offense. They're hitting 209 as a team, 301 on base, 664 OPS for this Brewers ball club. To put that into context, it's kind of comparable. It's actually right on par with the Marlins at 661 OPS, though they're hitting 230 as a team with a 303 on base. So pretty comparable uh, numbers offensively when you look at both teams. 
And when you look at the pitching, both teams have been staying afloat because of the pitching. The real difference between the Marlins and the Brewers is the bullpen because you don't have those games that the Marlins blew out of their bullpen and they're sitting at a similar record to the Brewers. And you can't really dwell on it, but that really is the only difference between these two teams. It's bad offenses, good starting pitching, and the difference is the Brewers have one of the best bullpens in the game and the Marlins are still feeling it out. I think the Marlins bullpen is not as bad as it feels because a lot of their mistakes have come in costly situations, but a lot of guys in this Marlins bullpen have settled in and are starting to kind of carve out their roles. But that really is the difference between these two teams. It's really just bullpen separation. And it's kind of a testament to the fact that the Marlins could improve with just a couple little changes or just a continued improvement with that bullpen. And that's why there is still room for improvement for this Marlins team. But the obvious room for improvement for both teams, and now as we talk about with the Marlins, is the offense. And that's where the Marlins need to kind of sort this out. But there's not much they can do right now. You got to wait for Marte and Anderson. And in the meantime, they finally made the right decision to go with Adam Duvall in center and err on the side of offense. The problem is that Garrett Cooper is not hitting well at all. He actually is really struggling as much as we've seen him struggle in a Marlins uniform. And I'm really going to say that a lot of it stands on the fact that he was not getting consistent at bats. But you know what? That excuse is only valid when you're not getting consistent at bats. And now it looks like Cooper is going to be getting consistent at bats until Marte is back. So if that is not what helps him get out of this rut, then we're going to need to figure out what's going on with Cooper. And the Marlins are going to have some things to sort out because we were looking at Cooper as a guy that was one of the more consistent and one of the guys that you're really counting on to be a big part of the offense, especially once you're able to plug in and figure out how to get him consistent at bats. But right now, he is really struggling with the swing and miss as much as we've seen him struggle with the swing and miss. And that's something that I really do attribute to the inconsistent at bats. A lot of the pinch hitting appearances is something that's not totally used to. He's getting these spot starts where he's just not able to get into any kind of rhythm at the plate. So now that he has the opportunity to get into somewhat of a rhythm, there is no excuse if he struggles throughout this series now in three straight games and then they move on to Washington and the struggles continue, the Marlins are going to have something to figure out there because Cooper was looked at across the league as a very consistent bat. There was a reason why when the Marlins went out and got Adam Duvall that a lot of teams were calling and saying, well, what's the deal with Cooper? Is he on the market? And there were some conversations about the Marlins trading him, even with the Dodgers. The Dodgers called about Garrett Cooper. I think he's going to be just fine as he gets these consistent at-bats, but this is something to follow because the Marlins don't really have a margin for error when it comes to the guys that they were expecting to produce not producing. Duvall, away from Truist Park, has not done much. And I mean, you, you take away the Truist Park numbers, I mean, half of his RBIs came in one game. He has 14 RBI this season. Seven of them are in one game. Duvall has got to do more. He really needs to do more and by a good margin. Dickerson has been a very pleasant surprise. 304 batting average, 351 on base. That's great. But the 743 OPS, the 391 slugging, I'm going to say it ad nauseum. We need more Dickerson damage or else this offense is going to continue to struggle to produce runs. The other thing that makes me nervous is that Jazz Chisholm, as he's gotten off to a really hot start, we can't really expect Jazz to not go through some rookie difficulties from time to time. Like the league is going to adjust to him a little bit. And as I always, always, always say, especially unlocked on MLB prospects is the biggest part about being a young player in this game and having sustainable success is not only the adjustment to the major leagues, but adjusting to how the major leagues adjust to you. 
So that second adjustment is always a big key to sustainable success. And that's why we see a lot of guys struggle. That's kind of why we've seen Kested Hero struggle. He had a great rookie season, but as the league started to figure him out, now he hasn't been able to make that adjustment back to the league adjusting to him. I know that Jazz will. I have no concerns about Jazz being a star in this game. I really think he will be. But there are going to be times here where he's going to go through it a little bit. He's going to have some tough stretches. It could even come in this series. And if that happens, the Marlins are absolutely due. This is a guy that's been leading their offense by a good margin in just about every way you can imagine. He's getting on base as much as anybody. He's stealing bags more than anybody. He's hitting more home runs than anybody. He's tied with Adam Duvall leading the team in homers, and Duvall did all of that in Atlanta. You're in a really scary spot if you're shouldering a majority of the offensive responsibility on a 23-year-old rookie that's going to have some ups and downs. I think it's going to be very difficult for the Marlins to expect Jazz Chisholm to have just consistent offensive production all of the time. And that has nothing to do with Jazz and everything to do with the fact that he is a rookie that is already hitting in the front of the lineup, which I love. I want him in the leadoff spot, and that's probably going to alleviate some of those issues because he's going to see more pitches to hit. But if you're facing this Marlins team, there's only two guys, maybe two and a half, that I don't want to face with runners in scoring position. That's Jazz Chisholm, Jesus Aguilar, and Corey Dickerson. So in certain situations in the ball game, there could actually be spots where Jazz Chisholm doesn't see a lot to hit. And the good news on that is that Chisholm has been taking his walks as much as he ever has, even in his minor league career with nine of them and 74 plate appearances. But the Marlins want Chisholm swinging away because... Like I said earlier, there's not that many guys that you can count on to really be productive in big spots. I mean, Miggy Rowe has been good and has been consistent like he always is, but his on-base percentage and slugging are like mirroring each other, 380-382. And there's just something to be said about a guy that can tie the ball game up with one swing of the bat, that can really run into one and just totally change the vibe of the game and change the whole outlook of the game. Corey Dickerson isn't even really in that Uh, category right now, given the fact that he hasn't left the yard yet this season. It really is a big difference to having Brian Anderson and Sterling Marte back, obviously, because you're not going to put Jazz on to now pitch to Marte, and it just totally changes the dynamic. It really is a huge, huge difference, but what would be a huge help to this team is Cooper hitting and solidifying this middle of the order a bit more, and Dickerson, though I love what we've seen from him and with his consistency at the plate, being able to offer a bit more power. The other instant way to at least boost this offense a little bit would be at the catching spot. Though Sandy Leone has swung a very solid bat so far in limited action for the Marlins this season, and he is clearly the better option to Chad Wallach, you have to start thinking about some potential options elsewhere. Even though the Marlins will have Jorge Alfaro coming back at some point, I would like to have a better secondary option than Sandy Leone because odds are Sandy Leone is not going to be able to hit consistently. I mean, this is a guy that has not even really sniffed the Mendoza line for several years now, and while he has looked decent through his first 12 at-bats, it's been just that, 12 at-bats. And I look at some options across the game, like a Wilson Ramos with the Tigers, who already has six home runs, which would be leading the Marlins, just for reference here, would be leading the Marlins in home runs. And imagine now, instead of having the catching position where the Marlins are getting a 500 OPS from Chad Wallach, they would be actually getting a guy that would be leading their team in home runs. That would be pretty absurd and almost seems like an unrealistic dream, which it kind of is. But even Jose Trevino with the Rangers, another guy where the Rangers are probably just fine and very keen on trading away from 
some of their veteran pieces to stockpile some prospects. They're in a very difficult kind of purgatory spot. And they also have Jonah Heim and Sam Huff, two young catching prospects that are pretty close to, if not already big league ready, as both of them have already seen big league time and are seeing some big league time right now. It would make sense for the Rangers to cash in on whatever they could get. The Marlins, that would make sense to at least make a call. Jacob Stallings with the Pirates as well. The Pirates are obviously going to trade for some prospects right now. And while people may say, okay, why would a team trade away from their ball club and trade a catcher this early in the season? That might be true, but it might be worth making a call and seeing what the price may be. There could be uh, a deal to be made there. While Ramos might be a bit more expensive, I could see a Jacob Stallings package with a reliever like Richard Rodriguez from the Pirates being a potentially interesting deal for the Marlins where Stallings, 31 years old, can kind of anchor your catching in the meantime and at least give you a good backup option in the meantime. And then you could get Richard Rodriguez who would bolster your bullpen right away. And we talk about how that would help the Marlins in the long term and the short term, but also even just a Ramos or a Trevino I think that just makes a huge, huge difference for this offense and gives them a huge jolt, and it's got to be worth considering, or at least calling, to see what the price is. I know people want to see what Alfaro can do. I want to see what Alfaro can do still, even though I'm not too uh, confident in his long-term success. He has made me eat my words a little bit, and he has impressed as of late before going down with the injury. I still don't think that's a valid reason to not get a very solid backup option not only because of the fact that Alfaro has been inconsistent at the plate, but because of the fact that he's obviously got some nagging injuries right now, and if something comes up again, you want to be able to have a better option than Chad Wallach and Sandy Leone, but also you want to keep Alfaro healthy, and maybe not playing him every day would be good. Maybe having a 50-50 timeshare behind the dish with a guy that's justifiably just as good, if not more consistent, and a veteran would probably be beneficial to the team and to Alfaro, and it's got to be worth thinking about. But anyway, Anyways, that'll do it for this episode. I have a lot more to talk about as the series uh, endures on, and hopefully the Marlins give Corbin Burns a run for his money as the game is about an hour out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow.